Uh, Luke 22, verses 1 to 20 today. I want to begin with our reading um, in verses 19 and 20. And then as we go through the rest of our study, we'll uh, read our text uh, as we go. Okay, verses 19 and 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, this morning, our, our Sunday school class um, coincides very well with the, the sermon for today and the text that we're looking at, because um, if you were in the in Sunday school this morning, you heard about this uh, first recorded Passover that we see Jesus attending. He had been to others, but this is uh, his first that we see in Luke's gospel. So when he's 12 years old and Joseph and Mary, as their habit was, as their discipline was, they went down to Jerusalem for Passover. So this also is Passover. Verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. For nearly 1,500 years, God had required the Jewish nation to celebrate the Feast of Passover. It had all started, as you remember, one night in Egypt, when at God's command, thousands upon thousands of one-year-old male lambs were killed in the place of Israel's firstborn sons. The blood of the lambs was applied to the doorway of every faithful Israelite home that was captive in the Jewish, in the Egyptian nation. Within those homes, then, the, the firstborn sons were saved. And that night, all of the participants, uh, ate the roasted lamb as the first Passover feast. So those lambs died in the place of Israel's firstborn sons, and all who partook were redeemed from Egyptian slavery. In Exodus 12, verse 27, we, we see where the name Passover came from. It says, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So now, again, 1,500 years later, we find Jesus celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. We call this the Last Supper because it is the last Passover supper that he will have with them before he is crucified, the last meal he will share with them before he is crucified. And it is also called the Last Supper because this is the last Passover supper that God will ever require of his people. And the reason for that is because Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Passover had always looked forward to a greater redemption yet to come. And in Jesus, that greater redemption has arrived. He fulfills the Passover. And in the fulfillment of it, He also institutes, as we just read a moment ago, He institutes for His people a new meal. It's the new covenant meal for God's new covenant people. Now, just before we, we're going to pray in just a moment, but before we do, I, I want to give to you my, my aim for this message this morning. 
You know, you know by now very well, I hope. Ryan's been reminding us even lately in Sunday school. Why did Luke write? Luke wrote for our certainty. And what I want you to have certainty of today is the astounding, certain love of Christ, our Redeemer, for His own. That's what I want you to be certain of. And you might say, I know that Jesus loves me. But do you ever think, how could God love me? A sinner like me. How how could He ever not regret saving me? And this passage speaks of the, the certainty of Christ's saving love. The love of our Redeemer for His own people. I want you to go away from here with just a rock-solid and unshakable conviction of His undying love. Let's pray. Father, as we come into Your Word this morning, as we listen to You, oh God, I pray that You would give to us Your Spirit so that we would not just see words on a page and we would not just hear information, but I pray that we would see the glory of the love of Christ and I pray, Father, that we would hear your truth and we would take it into our hearts and into our souls. I pray that you would put it down deep within us. And I pray, Father, that this this love we know would bear fruit in our lives, that we would not only know your love, but make it known. I pray that we would know it so well that it would overflow from our lives into those of others. Oh God, again I pray, Please give to us Your Spirit, for without Your Spirit, we have no comprehension, we have no conviction, we have no comfort that amounts to anything that will be of, uh, that was, that will be really truly lasting. So help us. We ask for Your mercy and Your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Him to death. Emphasis on the word how. For they feared the people. All of Jesus' enemies at this point are conspiring against him. You remember how all of the parties, all of the parties of the religious establishment have, have taken their turn and tried their hand at catching Jesus in his words. How did that go? It was a miserable failure right from the start. How could you catch Jesus, the Son of God, in his words? He gave perfect answers to confound them. And so this thing that they had meant to cast him down had only served to exalt him even higher. Must have been frustrating, don't you think? So in their minds, the time for dialogue and the time for words is done. And it's time to draw their swords. The Sanhedrin, made up of the chief priests and the scribes, the the leaders, the ultimate authorities, the, the Judaism's ruling religious council in this day is going to take the reins of this effort. And they're about to get an unexpected gift. It's a gift from their perspective. A traitor from within Jesus' own inside circle. The ministry of Jesus Christ has not gone according to the expectations of one Judas Iscariot. I think that Judas's expectations were like the rest of the disciples and the people of Israel. He was expecting a great conqueror to come 
and to displace Rome, to usher in the messianic age of blessing. And maybe perhaps even better than most, Judas was understanding, it was clicking with him, that it wasn't going to be this way. It, he, he loved riches. John explicitly says he kept the money bag for the, the party of disciples, and he was a thief. He used to help himself from it. I don't think they put two and two together on that until after everything had unfolded, but uh, he was a thief. He dreamed of riches. I mean, just think of it. He's in the inside circle of the one who will be the emperor of this new empire, as great as, at least, and probably greater than Rome. The inside circle. Dreams of wealth. Dreams of power. Dreams of fame. And yet, Jesus was condemning the dreams of worldly riches. He was exalting this base humility and servanthood and stressing its importance and at the same time promising the persecution of his followers. This was not turning out how Judas thought it would. And so just like for the leaders, so it was for Judas. Enough was enough. And he gave himself over to Satan and intended to give Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. Let's read these verses. Verses 3-6. to six. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Even as all of these powers are gathering against Jesus, political, religious, diabolical powers, we have to realize, and Luke will take pains to show us, that Jesus remains in complete control. The next seven verses clarify the absolute sovereignty of Jesus over all of this that takes place, right down to the smallest details. Jesus is not some hapless victim being swept away in this tide of hatred. He's not some unwitting victim who just happens to be caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rather, he is in the right place at the right time to suffer the worst injustice that humankind has ever inflicted that he might redeem those who will believe in the one who justifies the ungodly. That is his full intent. And he goes forward without any mistake, without any confusion. His face is set on the cross. You see, it's the enemies of Jesus who are scrambling right now. Satan included. They're scrambling. And Jesus is in lockstep with the eternal purpose of God. So let's read the next seven verses. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, you may possibly, if we're not reading carefully, come to the conclusion that Jesus must have had some kind of meeting on the side with the master of this house, and all of these details for the celebration of the Passover were prearranged. And so Jesus is repeating the instructions that he has had prearranged. Not so. Why would Luke include that detail? Why would he? It would be pointless. Luke is establishing something. What we are getting insight into is Jesus' supernatural knowledge and his firm control, supernatural control over all of these events. And just think about what goes into this, right down to the smallest detail. What must go into this knowledge so that this servant, you know, will leave the master's house, go to draw water. On his return, he crosses paths with Peter and John. What has to go into that? The exact time that this man is going to leave the house. And how long it will take to, for him to get to the water source, which will include the pace at which he walks, the length of his strides, the number of strides it takes for him to get to the water source, how long he must wait to get the water, how much water he draws, and then his return. But think about this. This will also include the number of people, even animals, that he will have to maneuver around to get back to this meeting point. And realize something. I'm not over, I'm not just making things up. On this specific day, Jerusalem happens to be the busiest city on the face of the earth. It's Passover. And there are hundreds of thousands of extra people, pilgrims, here in the city, to celebrate Passover. So all of this this tiny detail is included in this where this man, and how will the, so you might say, well, if there's so many, how are they supposed to find one man carrying a jar of water? Because that was woman's work. Honestly, in that day, it would be the women who did this. So that's why this man would stand out. And so at just the right time, he crosses paths with Peter and John, and they're able to follow him back to this house where the upper room will be furnished for them and they can celebrate Passover. Let's continue on in verses 14 and 15. And now we're going to slow down a little bit and more intensely dig in. I don't want to scratch the surface here by no means. There's There are some gems here to unearth that shine brilliantly with the love of Jesus speaking to us. And I, I want to get a hold of those. And I want us to keep those. And you'll, you'll hear some things that I've been repeating over the last few years, especially when we speak of the Lord's Supper. Let's get into this. Verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired this. This desire fills him. There is something that he wants 
very deeply. What is it? Now, the way that this phrase is constructed, earnestly desired, what you would see in the original language is basically a doubling up of the Greek word desire. So if we were literally translating it, and we can't into English, but if we were, it would be something like, I have desirously desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, though, what is it that he wants so deeply? It's not just Passover. This is not just any Passover. This is the fulfillment of what Passover has always been about. It is the significance of it. What Jesus wants so deeply is the redemption of His people. He wants to fulfill our redemption. He wants to save us and He wants to have us. I don't I don't want to speak in any kind of sentimental, sappy way about the love of Jesus that would be the way that we might talk about romantic love or being in love or or whatever. Uh, I I don't think that's appropriate. We don't... It's almost like we need another word. But this is the best word we got, is love. I mean, because the word love is so cheap today. I mean, people say, oh, I love your shoes, you know, that kind of thing. He wants His people. He wants to redeem us. He wants to have us. That's what Passover is about. The redemption, the owning, the having, the freedom of the people of God to belong to God. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. One of the reasons is because this Passover is loaded with with future hope. The Passover was a, a hope of greater redemption coming. So this is really, this is a guarantee. Jesus has longed for this because this meal, as it is fulfilled, is a guarantee for the future. He says, I tell you, I will not eat it, meaning I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is a guarantee that as He accomplishes our redemption, so He will see it through to completion. The next meal, like this, celebrating the redemption of the people of God, will be in the kingdom of God. When Jesus hosts the marriage supper of the Lamb, as it's promised in Revelation 19. So he says, for I tell you, I will not eat it, meaning again, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. On to verses 17 and 18. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this is an earlier cup within the meal. But as it is for the meal that celebrates redemption, so it is for the drink that is used all throughout, uh, all throughout Israel's history for, for feasting and celebration. He's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again. He's not going to drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes. 
wine was the drink of feasts. It's the drink of celebrations. It is, in the Bible, an ancient sign of the blessing of God. And so Jesus will drink it again when all his people are with him. All of them. So this Last Supper, this is heavy. It's heavy because it's definitely marked with this somberness and this sorrow because of the imminent suffering of our Lord Jesus. But it's not just somberness and and sorrow. It's also filled with promises of future grace for the people of God. This, This last meal with Jesus Christ is filled with the hope of endless meals with Christ. When all His people are home with the Lord, then it will begin. When all His people are home with Him. So these verses again that we looked at earlier. And He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the Passover meal, there was not great significance or symbolism attached to the bread or the last cup. And these different cups, I think there were four of them if I remember. All of that was part of their tradition. But there wasn't a great symbolism attached to them. Well, now there is. What Jesus is doing is fundamentally altering this meal and He is filling it with new meaning. It is no longer... I want you to understand this. This is no longer a meal signifying participation in the old great deliverance. In the old Passover and the redemption from slavery in Egypt that was part of the heritage of the people of God and still remains part of the heritage of God's people. But now this meal signifies our participation in Christ. That's what this is about. It is a sign of of our participation with Jesus. This past Wednesday, this got brought up, how strange this meal would be to unchurched people. I mean, can you imagine never having grown up in church and and coming in on one of these occasions where the church is celebrating the Lord's Supper and they take the small piece of bread and the little cup and they say these words, they read read these words and all of this, you're like, what is going on here? I mean, it would be really weird. Maybe even cultish looking to the uninitiated. But think of it this way. Okay, because this, this kind of thing, and I say this in a loose way, is very common in our world. Every day, somewhere, members of some group gather to perform their rituals, recite their oaths, and renew their participation together in whatever their common purpose is. I want to say that again. Every day somewhere, members of some group gather together to perform their rituals, recite their oaths, and renew their participation together in whatever their common purpose is. What we have in Christ is similar to that and infinitely better than any practice like that in the world. So we share in the ritual of this covenant meal. We do not recite an oath, but we hear Christ's oath 
to give Himself to us. And we partake in Him again, renewing our covenant with Him. Do you see how all of a sudden unstrange it is? Unstrange, but infinitely better. And as it is like the world, it is totally unlike anything the world knows. This is our communion together with Christ. The typical Baptist or Baptistic view is simply that this is a memorial. It is for remembrance. It's more than that. It is more than that. It is participating in Christ. It is being renewed in the covenant together. It is receiving by faith the benefits of Jesus' atonement again. That is what the communion that we celebrate is all about. So let's look at this. Jesus, he it says He give, gives thanks. He takes the bread and breaks it and He gives to the disciples and He says, this is My body. Now, of course, Jesus does not mean that this is literally His body or that it becomes His literal body. We are not ingesting the physical DNA of Jesus into our digestive system. That is not what is happening. He is saying the bread represents His body. It represents His body. But notice, I've pointed this out many times. It feels like a whole lot to me that I've pointed this out. He gives thanks for this. He gives thanks for this. This is not just some token thanksgiving. It is not just part of the habit of having a meal together or the Passover meal that He gives thanks to God. He is not simply thanking God for the supply of this bread. He is thanking God for the supply of this bread. Do you doubt the love of God for you? Do you ever think, how could He love me? He says He loves me, but I'm just kind of lumped in with everybody else maybe. And how could He love me as He says He loves His people? He gives thanks that God gives Him to have us in Him. He is giving thanks that God is giving Him to have us in Him. That is what this thanksgiving is about. He is thanking God for the work of redemption that He will accomplish in the breaking of His body and the pouring out of His blood. That's why He gives thanks. Not just for the supply of the, that physical bread, but the supply of this, His body, that physical bread. He says, let's notice another phrase, which is given for you. What do you think that he means when he says this is given for you? Do you think he just says that to anyone and everyone? There is a reason why Jesus is gathered in this upper enclosed room with these followers of his, these participants. Because he does not say this to everyone. And I might be saying something that sounds controversial to you. So be it. I want to make a case for this. Okay? 
Uh, and I understand when he says, this is my body which is given for you, there is a, a member present who is a fraud. There's a Judas there. He's a liar. He's a fraud. And he is not a true participant in the sacrifice of Christ as the others are. I understand that. And that's just the way it's going to be. It, it was in the beginning of Christ's people way, way, way back in this moment and it will be this way until the end of the age until Jesus separates the wheat from the tares. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus loves everyone? Yes, He does. Absolutely, yes, He does. But do you think Jesus loves everyone just the same? No, He does not. That would be silliness. It would not, it would, it would distort so much of what we have in the Bible. In fact, if Jesus loved anyone and everyone just the same, I submit to you, that would be a betrayal of His people. When God says in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Israel is gathered to Him at Sinai, and He promises the people of Israel, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Basically saying, I could have anyone, but I choose you. You will be my treasured possession. Does he actually mean, just like I treasure everyone else? That would be silliness. It would not, it would not make sense in the whole treasured possession thing. There's no point in saying it. If we are God's treasured possession as we are as his people, then he loves us, his people above all. Let me give you a, an example from just life. You know, if I said to my children, I love you kids, just like I love anyone now. If I said it to my wife, I love you, sweetheart, but just like I love anyone. They would feel, they would be right to feel betrayed. So God loves His children above all creation. Above all people, God loves His children. Don't misunderstand. God loves all, but in different ways. And He loves His children above all. Jesus loves His bride above all. And so what I'm submitting to you today is that Jesus, as He loves His people above all, He died for His people above all. This is. Let me put it like this. He died for all, in that His death is the way that all can be saved. Just like the death of a Passover lamb was the way that all the firstborn could be saved. But in the homes where the Passover lamb was actually slaughtered, the death of that lamb did more than just make a way for the firstborn to be saved. It actually saved the firstborn. And so the death of Jesus Christ more than just makes a way for His own, His death actually purchases as secure the redemption of those whom God gives to His Son from eternity. So the Bible speaks of this so many ways. When Jesus says the good shepherd lays His life down for His sheep, He is speaking of His own. The Bible calls us the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Who did He obtain? His people. When did He obtain them? At the cross. 
The death of Jesus Christ, you could say, put it this way, it is sufficient for all mankind, but it secured as sure the redemption of those who were chosen by God in eternity past in Christ. And you're meant to revel in this. And you, you can hear the hints of this doctrine of election in this. You can hear the hints of that. And I know that some of you, and I'm going to submit this gently, you're meant to revel in it. And the only people who revel in their election are those who understand that God chose us apart from anything to do in us. No confession, no action, no thought, no belief. He chose us in Christ purely of His sovereign grace. And you are meant to revel in that. But if you think that God chose you because He saw what you would do, what you would believe, what choice you would make for Christ, what your life would become, you don't revel in the doctrine of election. In fact, I would say the doctrine of election doesn't mean anything at all. It's meant to give you so much confidence and joy. Let us love in return. Let us sing and let us wonder at the love of God in Christ for us. I don't want you to be offended by these things. I want your hearts to be gladdened by these things. Now, is there any question of your inclusion? Hear Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So come, and there will be no question of your inclusion. I want you to see when Jesus says, this is my body which is given for you. It's for you. I want you to see the love of God for you. Because this is for His redeemed. This is what He says to His own. He gives Himself to be broken and poured out for them. Let's look at verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you realize? I mean, I want, I wish we could just be caught off guard every time we read those words. Because they are absolutely stunning words. New covenant. We talk about it all the time. What does it mean? Well, you have your Bible divided in two. You've got the Old Testament, makes up the bulk of it. And then you have the New Testament. The word testament means covenant. Old covenant and new covenant. Let me read to you. In fact, while I'm talking, go ahead and turn to Exodus 19. Beginning in verse 5. When we go through these words, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I want you to get this. I want this to mean in your heart what it truly means. So looking at Exodus 19, beginning in verse 5. This is what the Lord said to His people after He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He said, Now therefore... If you will indeed 
obey my voice. One of the key words. If, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says to Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now over to verse uh, chapter 24. Now, if you glance at 20, chapter 20, as you turn, you'll notice the Ten Commandments there. And there are other laws concerning slavery and justice and so on that we have from the Lord given to Moses in the meantime. Then in chapter 24, the people gather together again, and I want you to look at verses 7 and 8. It says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here we have the old covenant ratified. It is now put into effect by the sprinkling of the blood of bulls onto the people. Half had been put on the altars, half that was gathered in these basins sprinkled on the people. So here we have God's commitment, the conditions that the people promised to keep, and then the consummation of this covenant in the blood of bulls. Well, you know how things went. Turn over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. 1,000 years later, Israel stands on the brink of exile for all her centuries of disobedience. And at this moment in her history, all hope seems lost. And yet, as they have been, they are at their most unfaithful. God is faithful still. When they least deserve His mercy, mercy is what He declares to them. So look at verses, we'll begin in verse 31. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured 
and the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. These are the promises of the new covenant. Do you see how much better the new covenant is than the old in every way? It is superior in every way. Let me give you five things quickly. The old covenant saves no one. The new covenant saves us. All its participants are saved. Second, the new covenant promises not the words on tablets of stone, but its internalization so that we know God intimately. Third, get this one, the old covenant blessings hinge on the command of obedience. The new covenant blessings hinge on the promise of forgiveness. Four, the blood of bulls ratified the old covenant, but the blood of God's own Son put the new covenant into effect. And five, the blood of the old covenant was sprinkled onto the people. In the new covenant, as is pictured here in the Lord's Supper, it is not sprinkled upon us, but the blood of God's own Son is received into us by faith. And so that we have the life of Jesus flowing in our spiritual veins. There are layers and layers of meaning in the Old Supper. And this is what God has given us to participate in together as the New Covenant meal. Paul wrote, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, not speaking of these elements, but speaking of Jesus, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is the covenant meal that Jesus has given to us. And by it, we participate in the atonement of Christ again, receiving it by faith into our souls, renewed together in the covenant. Do you see from this passage, do you see how in the Lord's Supper, do you see how the Lord loves you? Do you understand the certainty, the saving power, and the steadfastness of God's love for His own? Father, we thank You for what You have given to us in Jesus. I thank You, Father, for this love that is real, that is everlasting, for those who are yours in Christ. We are completely unworthy of this love in and of ourselves. We could never lay a claim upon this love, your covenant love for your people. I pray, my Father, that I, I pray that each one here would truly know this love down deep in their hearts and realize that there is nothing like it, not in all the world. I pray, Father, that they would be certain 
and they would be confident. They would, in return, love you and pour out your love to extend to others. I pray that we would sing and I pray that we would wonder and I pray that we would truly worship and give ourselves completely to you. Leave all behind. Follow Christ alone because of your great love. In Jesus' name I pray.